Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet. I've got a poll. I'm going to have an opinion poll, at least one, every week from now on. Here's this week's first poll. Who was the biggest hypocrite at the Cenotaph today? Was it Tony Blair, A? Tony Blair, B, no, I mean Boris Johnson, B, Jeremy Corbyn, C. Boris Johnson made an absolute haddock of planting his wreath on the cenotaph. He planted it upside down, face down, instead of face up. If Jeremy Corbyn had done that, it would have dominated the next few days of Britain's general election coverage but it was Boris Johnson that did it, so you will not hear it anywhere except here. Well, I think that these hypocrites deserve outing. There were tens of thousands of sincere people at the memorial services last night in the Albert Hall and today at the Cenotaph. But our political class busily cooking up new wars in which our young people can fall and be subsequently grieved over in years to come uh, in their minds, even as they mourned the victims of past wars. But the British general election, of course, continues to dominate. And the hysteric mendacity of the British mainstream media, in fact, almost from A to Z, the British media, has moved into overdrive, certainly moved up a gear. But believe me, there are still some gears through which they can still move up. It's all the usual stuff. Labour is going to spend £1.2 trillion of your money, say the Tories, although Labour hasn't published its election manifesto yet, and the Tories will not tell us how much they're going to spend from the magic money tree they seem to have uncovered. In any case, I want to pose the question, what's wrong with spending £1.2 billion of taxpayers' money? As long as it's spent well. As long as it's spent as investment and not wasted. As long as it's spent on kick-starting and defending the vital sinews of our economy. I believe that the state, the public sector, the public finances have a vital role to play. And if we Brexit at the end of the year, as we're still promised to do, and I'll come back to that in a minute, then we'll be needing to rebuild our manufacturing, rebuild our industry. That's not spending. That is investment, as any industrialist, any economist will tell you. But Labour, instead of defending the spending of 1.2 
trillion pounds are denying that that number is even true. And of course, all the old, hoary old stories are back out again. Let me take just one. A good friend of mine for well over 30 years, Andrew Murray, now a key advisor to Jeremy Corbyn and the chief of staff of my trade union, Unite, is outed this morning in one of the major newspapers as having four times spoken to a Czechoslovak spy during the Cold War. Well, the fact that he was the Morning Star's parliamentary correspondent, a communist newspaper, would have made it quite likely that he had spoken to a Czechoslovak four times or more over a period of years. But Czechoslovakia and communism, for that matter, are decades dead. And it's not immediately clear why that should be a splash in today's newspapers to try and damage Labour's chances in the general election. In any case, actually, Mr Murray has never heard of, seen, met or communicated with the so-called Czechoslovak spy in question. It's pure invention, like most of the political coverage in the British media. It's important that you know that. When you read a story in the British media, it's almost certainly either wholly untrue or partly untrue and, at best, a distortion of the truth. Of course, some facts are chills that win a ding, and we'll come to some of those in the course of the next period. One of them is the argument that Jeremy Corbyn, for all his other faults and weaknesses, is somehow an anti-Semite. This will go down in history as one of the biggest lies ever told in British political history. It is literally an inversion of the truth. It is the opposite of the truth. Corbyn does not have a racist hair on his head or face, a racist bone in his body, not a jot, tittle or scintilla. And almost everybody alleging that he does knows that he doesn't. That's the scale of the mendacity. There will be poor uh, schmucks out there in the country that have bought the propaganda hook, line and sinker, but the vast majority, if not all, of the chief propagandists of this line know that it isn't true and there can be no fire, surely, amongst the hellfires, hotter than the fires destined for those who willfully lie on such an important, sensitive matter as anti-Semitism, which in the lifetime of some people still watching and listening to this show this evening, massacred industrially, systematically massacred millions upon millions of people for no other reason than that they were Jews, an attempt to genocidally eliminate from the earth Jews. Now, it doesn't get more serious than lying that someone is 
somehow sympathetic to or likely to follow policies which lead in the direction of harm towards Jews. It is utterly untrue that the Labour Party is where anti-Semitism is often to be found. It is actually true that it is the other side of the house where historically anti-Semitism was rampant on the right of politics. And I am personally able to testify to that. I have spoken to conservative members of parliament, ministers, ex-ministers, who told me there were far too many Estonians in the Conservative cabinet and not enough Etonians. I could give you their names, though they are deceased, but it probably would serve little purpose. I'm talking 30 years ago. But John Bercow, the outgoing speaker of the British Parliament, made it clear in his interview, what is it with GQ? Are they paying or what? Everyone's queuing up to be interviewed by Tony Blair's Goebbels, Alistair Campbell in GQ, and John Bercow was just the latest of those. John McDonnell, infamously, a week or two before. But Bercow made it clear in his interview with Campbell that not only is Corbyn not anti-Semitic, but that any anti-Semitism he, as a Jew, has ever experienced in the House of Commons, he inferred came from the other side. And that does not surprise me in the slightest. It's not all about the general election, though, but we do have the privilege of the presence of Chris Williamson, the erstwhile Labour Member of Parliament for Derby North, who has been thoroughly unjustly, in most people's opinion, deprived of the Labour nomination and has now left the Labour Party after nearly half a century in it and is now standing against Labour in his old constituency. We'll talk to him about his experience and we'll talk to him about the general election so far. The polls up there, who's the biggest hypocrite? A, Tony Blair, B, Boris Johnson, C, Jeremy Corbyn. Get voting now. There it is on the screen. Let me see uh, your voting patterns on that. Speaking of voting patterns, the uh, polls make grim reading for the Labour Party. Hardly surprising given the wall, organised wall, of media hysteria and hatred, uh, but also because Labour has fatally compromised itself in this election, in particular parts of Britain, with its cockamamie stance on Brexit. Having polled 40% of the vote in 2017 on a promise to respect and implement the decision to leave the EU, the Labour Party has allowed itself to be manoeuvred by the likes of Tom Watson and John MacDonald and Emily Thornberry and Keir Starmer and other luminaries into a position which is literally going to cost it scores of parliamentary seats. And I mean scores, because there was a major poll this week, one of the biggest of the election so far, which concentrated on the regional figures. And that's the important thing, you see. It's not a national election. It's not like the American presidential poll, 
where the national polling figures are significant. What's significant in a general election is the poll in specific areas, and Labour is down by 20%, 25%, 15% in formerly key heartland areas. And I can tell you, in the West Midlands, Labour will lose like dominoes, seat after seat after seat, because of their Brexit position and one or two other things. And in the East Midlands, it will be even worse. And in the Northwest, once Labour's fortress, Labour is down at 30% in the Northwest region of the country. Only in the Northeast, outside of London, is Labour ahead, and it's ahead by three points. Imagine Sunderland, Newcastle, Bishop Auckland, all these places, which for most of a century have been Labour heartlands, are now in danger of being overrun by the Conservatives. So on the national polling, the Tories are 11 points ahead, but in the regional polling, where the constituencies are, I'm afraid it looks pretty bleak for Labour. On the other hand, in Spain, there is actually a general election taking place right now. And as the Catalan question has come alight again, so it's raining on the parade of the sitting Prime Minister, the Labour or Socialist Prime Minister in Madrid. The Tories, the People's Party, are on the up, going to take seats, it would appear, and the far-right populist party, the Vox Party, may well force themselves into third place. The Citizens Party and Podemos, that once looked like the great new hopes of Spanish politics, are fading badly at the polls. We hope to be able to bring you the exit poll results from there later in the show. But we will be talking to an important journalist who follows the Catalan question closely about what next for Catalonia, what next for Spain. And we'll be talking to one of my favorite artists. I'd love to see her perform here in the studio. I'd love even to play her music, but for copyright reasons, we're not able to do that. But if I tell you at the end of this show, if you go looking on YouTube for Natasha Atlas, you will thank me for the rest of your life that I put you in her direction. One of the greatest artists from the Maghreb and England, a fusion of British, English culture and the culture of North Africa, the culture of Morocco and Algeria and the Maghreb lands of the Arab world. Quite stupendous music, I must say. The votes are uh, coming in. Tony Blair is ahead. That's a surprise. 63% of you think that Tony Blair was the biggest hypocrite at the Cenotaph today. 14% say Boris Johnson. And a staggering 23% say Jeremy Corbyn. Tell me why. Phone up and tell me why Jeremy Corbyn was a hypocrite. Was it his raincoat? Uh, I thought he wore quite a smart uh, outfit today. What exactly was he hypocritical about? Now, I don't personally know Chris Williamson very well. In fact, in the years I've known him, I've had precisely one cup of tea with him, and that comparatively recently. But I have appeared on many platforms with him and interviewed him 
on many of my shows. And I have watched as he literally did the road and the miles, the length and breadth of this country, proselytizing for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. All the more surprising then, that of all the members, all of them, of the outgoing parliamentary Labour Party, the only one who will not be standing again as a Labour candidate is Chris Williamson. Jeremy Corbyn's friend and champion has been axed by Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Now, some people say, well, Corbyn doesn't interfere in these kind of things. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. And I think you know what I mean. If you don't, Google it. West Bromwich East. And Chris Williamson has been forced, as I was when I was expelled from the Labour Party over the Iraq War in 2003, I either have to accept the slander of the Labour Party and disappear from politics, or I had to stand up and fight for my reputation, for my record, and I defeated Labour not once, but twice. Now, Chris Williamson has had to do the same. Having been forced out of the Labour Party, he's standing as an independent, and he's on the line now. Chris Williamson, welcome. Thank you, George. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, just tell the audience uh, how you've ended up in this situation. Well, there was a smear campaign, a concerted smear campaign against me that's been running really since I was re-elected back in 2017. I did an article in The Guardian, or I should say an interview, uh, with a reporter in The Guardian, and that appeared uh, around a, a full-page length article uh, about my interview and I went through a range of different issues that I was concerned about uh, and felt passionate about and uh, one of the issues I discussed with the reporter who interviewed me was the smear campaigns against Jeremy Corbyn and I cited the attack about him being an IRA sympathiser, his support for Venezuela and uh, the absurd blurs against him that he was in some way anti-Semitic and I said that those attacks in particular were a dirty, low-down trick and bullshit. I think. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was a term that I used, and that put a, a sort of crosshairs on my back, I think. And from that moment forward, I was systematically smeared by, I think, the self-same uh, uh, individuals who've been going after Jeremy. 
But I think the main reason why I have been targeted is because I have been fighting for greater transparency, openness and democracy in the Labour Party, because my view is the Labour Party belongs to its grassroots members. It doesn't belong to the Parliamentary Labour Party or the bureaucrats who are located in the party's head office. They are the party's servants, not the party's master. And regrettably, they seem to have got the power relationship the wrong way around. And last year, I mounted a, started a democracy roadshow where I was going around to different constituencies where they invited me to talk about openness and democracy. And one of the things I wanted to see was open selections being reintroduced. I mean, we had, as you'll recall, George, mandatory selection in the Labour Party in the early 1980s, and I wanted to see that return. But I also wanted more democracy in how we make policy. I wanted to utilise the digital world that we now live in to give members more say over how we develop our policy program going forward with a view to then using that to get into government and when we get there to democratize our economy to democratize our society it was a kind of feel like a means to an end and it was fed back to me that uh, some of the malcontents in the parliamentary labor party sitting in the tea rooms in the house of commons were saying they wanted me out as payback for the democracy roadshow. Frankly, I, I, I regret to say that, that many of the, the, uh, my erstwhile colleagues in the Parliamentary Labour Party have a real sense of entitlement and don't feel that they should be accountable in any way to uh, ordinary grassroots members. I feel like the bedrock of our, of our movement. And they've used a disgusting, despicable smear campaign to uh, demonise me and to ultimately get me removed as a candidate. But, of course, I'm not the only victim. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of people thousands, who yeah. have suffered similarly. And uh, it's outrageous because it's Jeremy's Praetorian Guard, socialists in our movement, socialists in the Labour Party, who have been systematically targeted and continue to be targeted uh, for uh, uh, suspension and expulsion by a tiny cohort who are in no way representative and are in no way democratic either. And let's remember that the National Executive Committee, the vast majority of whom, are not elected. They're appointed by bureaucrats in the trade union movement, by bureaucrats in so-called socialist uh, societies, uh, and uh, by the leaders of the uh, Scottish and Welsh Labour Party, shadow cabinet. Some of the shadow cabinets are appointed similarly, and uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party appoints uh, a number of individuals too. So, you know... This was an entirely undemocratic decision, which was taken in the face of overwhelming opposition by grassroots members of our party. And that's why I think so many people are up in arms about it, George. Well, uh, you adumbrate all the reasons why uh, people were out to get you, and most people listening to this will understand it all too clearly, sadly, and saw it coming down the track uh, from quite a distance. What is harder to understand is why Jeremy Corbyn did nothing to come to your aid. Well, unfortunately, Jeremy's in a minority um, in the Parliamentary Labour Party, it seems. He's in a minority on the National Executive Committee as well. I mean, Jeremy made it clear to me that he wanted to see me back in the party, uh, standing as a candidate, but even Jeremy's wishes were not followed through by the national executive, seemingly. And that's why I say this party machine is out of control. And, uh, you know, we need a, a sort of root and branch reform of our party's structures if we're going to give this party back to the people to whom it belongs, 
In other words, the Labour Party grassroots membership. And that's why my campaign is going to be, in my opinion, so important, not just about getting me re-elected, which obviously I hope I can replicate your success, George, when you uh, were forced into a similar situation. But it's so important, I think, to the future of the Labour Party, so important to the future of democracy. And I'm somebody who's very, very passionate on the local issue, very passionate about Derby. I mean, I was born in the city, I lived in the city, grew up in the city. Uh, and obviously I want to continue representing the people, as I've been doing now for the best part of 35 years, as a welfare rights officer, then a local councillor, leader of the council, and MP. I mean, frankly, it's the kind of casework. It's standing up for local people and getting things done for local people and, and using the influence that you that you have as an MP to right the wrongs and to correct the injustices that all too many people, sadly, are being subjected to in Britain today. And, uh, you know, I very much want to be able to continue doing that, standing up for, uh, for uh, people in my home city. But on that wider element, though, that issue about democracy, you know, and, and trying to regain control of our party, and to actually improve your know, politics in our country as a whole. And the minute there's a tiny cohort within the, within the Labour Party, uh, you know, the, the establishment, if you like, who don't represent the interests of the vast majority of party members, or indeed, in my opinion, the vast majority of the country as a whole, who have an iron grip on our uh, democracy. And it's therefore not fair, isn't giving people in the country a, a proper and adequate choice. I'd hoped that we'd moved on from the new Labour era, and I think in many ways we have moved on from that new Labour era. And, and I'm confident that Jeremy can win this election, and I'm confident as well that we'll start to see the beginning of some socialist uh, uh, policies being implemented uh, on the uh, domestic front, as it were. But I fear that our foreign policy will still remain imperialist, notwithstanding our commitment to an ethical foreign policy. And that's why I think it's so important that you know, we give this party back to our members, that we break the stranglehold that this tiny cohort at the centre of the, uh, the party with that unedifying sense of entitlement, to, uh, that we break that grip so that we can have, a, a, you know, a genuine sort of democratic party that, that, that doesn't indulge in, uh, in uh, this kind of uh, it, it, social imperialism that we are currently witnessing from people who many, I think, uh, in our party are on our side. I mean, regrettably, some of the leaders in Momentum, for example, are guilty of this. And uh, it's so important, therefore, I think, that we do continue this call for democracy. And as Tony Benn himself once said, democracy is the most revolutionary thing in the world. And he was absolutely correct when he said that. I didn't quite understand what he meant when I first read it, but given the treatment to which I've been subjected and others have been subjected for, for fighting for, for greater democracy, for fighting for social justice and, uh, and a genuine ethical foreign policy, people like yourself, George, know precisely what Tony meant when he, when he uttered those words all those years ago. Well, you're very loyal, uh, Chris, more loyal than they deserve, uh, but I'll not uh, pursue that line uh, any further now on the air. I just want to raise one or two other issues. Uh, the first one is... You, is this a coincidence? Only one member of the British Parliament, out of 650, has stood up consistently, bravely, publicly, outside the prison walls for Julian Assange. And that member of Parliament is Chris Williamson, the one that's just been sacked. And only one member of Parliament consistently, publicly, bravely, attacked the so-called integrity 
initiative, which was the PSYOPs, the Black Ops, the Dirty Tricks Department of the British state, which was seeking to target people, organizations, academics, journalists, uh, politicians, who stood up to the incredible narrative that we are currently living through on the Scripple affair, Salisbury, and so on. Um, that was also Chris Williamson. You're the only person who stood up on both those things in the House of Commons, and you're the one that's now out. Is there any connection between these things, or is that just a coincidence? Well, it may be coincidence, or there may be a connection. I don't know. I know a number of people have said that it's interesting that the ferocity of the attacks against me did seem to intensify when I started asking difficult questions about the activities of the Integrity Initiative and the so-called Institute for Statecraft. I lodged a complaint, actually, about the Institute for Statecraft with the Office of the uh, Scottish Charity Regulator because they are... Well, they I say they're based up there, but they're, they're, they're registered. Their registered office is registered is, is in, a, in a derelict in a, a derelict mill. mill. I, I, absolutely, and I know that because I went to uh, investigate for myself and discovered it was a semi-derelict mill where they are located. And it's obvious that they weren't acting as a charity. And uh, as a consequence of my complaint, the, uh, an inquiry was was mounted, and indeed they were found wanting. And uh, a very critical report has recently being published by the office of the Scottish Charity Regulator, which was very critical of the uh, organization of the trustees. And um, they've had to make some significant changes to their modus operandi. What I'd be interested to know now is uh, where is the funding still coming from? Uh, what, what are they now doing? And under what guise are they now operating? But the scandal of this, of course, is that the so-called Integrity Initiative was receiving public money, over two and a half million pounds from the Foreign Office uh, the, and the uh, Ministry of Defence. And their activities were very similar to Operation Mockingbird that was established by the CIA in the early 1950s, which was used to place uh, stories in the newspapers, supporting the administration, supporting the uh, hostility to the Soviet Union, hostility to the civil rights movement, and also to influence the civil rights and, uh, and student movement by in, 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 putting people inside those organizations. And then you look at what this organization is doing, it's precisely the self-same thing, but actually on a grander scale, not just in Britain, but across the whole of Europe. A chap called Pedro Banos was the favored candidate, the favored Socialist Party candidate to become the director of the uh, Department of, uh, of Homeland Security, I believe it was. And uh, because he'd made some fairly softball comments about Russia not, in his opinion, posing any real threat to the national interests of Spain, he was targeted by the Integrity Initiative's Spanish cluster, and they ensured that there were hostile articles smearing uh, this chap in the Spanish press, and there was a social media campaign organized against him, a pylon, and ultimately he was not appointed to that job. And so we have an organization here funded by the taxpayer that is smearing people in uh, foreign democratic countries, but also is using money, public money, to smear the leader of the opposition. This is a direct attack 
on British democracy. And so one wonders whether or not uh, my questions about it led to uh, an intensification of the attacks upon me. I have no evidence to suggest that it was, but um, I wouldn't be surprised to be honest. No, no. But your point about, uh, your point about Julian is, is one that's well made as well, because the man is an international hero. He's done an incredible public service, uh, not just for Britain, but for the entire world in highlighting the outrageous abuse of state power, war crimes by the United States of America, uh, corporate uh, abuse of power, and so on. Uh, and that's why he's been targeted. And, and I think when people say to me, how do you sort of withstand the attacks to which you've been subjected? And, you know, it's not very pleasant, I've got to say. It's not pleasant on me or indeed my family. I take heart and inspiration from people like Julian Assange, uh, Lula da Silva, who's thankfully just been released from prison in Brazil, who have really paid hugely for their integrity. And we absolutely have to do everything we can, in my opinion, to support Julian Assange and to continue to bring pressure to bear. And one of the things I'm absolutely hoping beyond a hope that we, or one of the reasons I'm hoping beyond a hope that we get Jeremy into 10 Downing Street is that under a Labour government, we will release Julian from the, from the outrageous incarceration to which he's being subjected at the moment. As I say, he is an international hero and we should tell Donald Trump where to get off in terms of any notion of extradition to the US. So that's one absolutely crucial reason why we need to get a Corbyn-led Labour government. Look, in Derby North, I am the real Labour candidate. I mean, I'm standing as an independent because I have to, as you know, but I am the real Labour candidate. I am the only candidate on the ballot paper who will actually support Labour's programme and the only candidate on the ballot paper who supports Jeremy Corbyn as our leader. My Labour opponent, if they go ahead with him as the Labour candidate, and I've called on the Labour Party not to field a candidate in this election, uh, but he campaigned against Jeremy Corbyn. He supported Owen Smith. Uh, you know, he's no friend of Jeremy Corbyn at all. And so I don't want to indulge in you know, negative politics, but that's just the fact of the matter. And so I believe that uh, the Labour Party uh, shouldn't field a candidate. But if they do, I would urge everybody who, who believes in democracy, decency and social justice, who is opposed to backroom stitch-ups and dirty dealings, who doesn't agree with the, the sense of, of entitlement that, that certain individuals in the party seem to display and think they can ride roughshod over party members and, uh, and uh, the voters in Derby North to actually give them a bloody nose uh, you know, and vote for me. And uh, I will certainly support the Labour programme and certainly be more loyal to Jeremy Corbyn than the, the person that the NEC has undemocratically installed in my place. Now, lastly, uh, I was at a Nicaragua event the other night. I met two very young uh, uh, Labour, uh, young Labour lads. Nice lads they were uh, from uh, London constituencies. Um, they looked like your archetypal uh, Blair factory uh, boys, but they were not. Uh, they were sympathetic, actually, to you. Uh, and to me for that matter. But they did make this point, and there will be people listening, watching tonight, who will also feel it. What do you say to the argument that by standing as an independent, you're splitting the vote and potentially allowing the Conservatives in? My answer to them was, well, you should have thought of that before you kicked Williamson out. 
If you think that he's so popular, he can split the vote sufficiently to lose the seat for Labour, you should have thought about that more carefully uh, before you defenestrated him. Uh, but equally, and in my case more markedly, because I was expelled 18 years ago nearly uh, and have beaten them twice. The idea that I owe the Labour Party anything is quite absurd, you know. In fact, the contrary is true. But what do you say to the general point that by people like you and me standing in elections against Labour candidates, whoever they are, however bad they are, we're splitting the vote and letting the Tories in. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons I've said that the Labour Party shouldn't field a candidate. But this is a really important campaign. This is, as I've already said, George, it's not just about me. This is a battle for democracy. It's a battle for the soul of the Labour Party. The party's, the party's establishment has acted in an entirely undemocratic way in the way in which they, they've dealt with me. Look, if they'd said we're going to have a, 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 an emergency selection process, we're going to invite all party members in Derby North to uh, have a say and uh, um, allow them to either vote or against or for me or someone else. And if they decided to select someone else, well, I'd have walked away and have accepted that. I might have even considered walking away and accepting it, George, if they'd acted in an undemocratic fashion, but it installed somebody who actually supports the leader, who supports the Labour programme. But they've done the very opposite of that. And what I say is that this campaign that I am fighting is one that I'm fighting to win. I'm not fighting to split the Labour vote. Uh, as I've said, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about Derby. It's a city where I was born and grew up. Uh, and uh, you know, I feel that my record over the period will hopefully uh, uh, carry me through with, with people. I've had very, very good feedback, I think. And, and when we get the message out, I think, to people about the wholly undemocratic way in which the Labour Party has acted, when they get the message out that I am literally the real Labour candidate on the ballot paper, that I'm fairly hopeful and, and confident that we can win sufficient numbers of uh, voters in Derby North to actually vote for me to deliver the sort of policies that this country is crying out for. And as I say, if the party is genuinely concerned about splitting the vote, well, then they should not fill the candidate in this election. If it's in this election in Derby North, if it isn't won by me or the installed Labour candidate, well, the fault for that, if it's won by the Tories, the fault for that lies fairly and squarely at the door of those 20 members of the National Executive Committee who acted in a wholly undemocratic way. And let's also remember that 17 of those individuals who voted to prevent me being the candidate were not elected to that role by anybody. And the majority of those who were elected to the National Executive Committee by party members did vote for me to be the candidate in this election. So I think the question shouldn't be put to me, it should be put to the Labour Party. And I fully intend to fight this campaign. I've had huge support already pledged to me locally and from around the country. And I'm looking forward to running a very vigorous uh, campaign uh, that will, I think, be 
far better than anything the Labour Party were able to put on locally, uh, and that we will, I'm hopeful, convince sufficient people to enable me to continue the work on behalf of local people and to continue the work standing up for and fighting for, for justice for people like Julian Assange, uh, Julian Assange and, and exposing the outrageous attacks on our democracy by organisations like the Institute for Statecraft and the Integrity uh, Initiative, and to also fight for... Uh, a, 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 a genuine ethical foreign policy and to tear down the, the, uh, the edifice of uh, the sort of imperialist uh, policy agenda which seems to be so embedded in the British sort of establishment. And uh, if, we, well, Chris, if, we, if we want somebody if we want to do that, they should vote for me. Chris Williamson, uh, a very clear and uh, clarion call uh, for your kind, your side of, uh, of Labour politics. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, there are elections going on at the minute in Spain. In fact, the polls have closed. There are no exit polls in Spain. Indeed, you're not even allowed to publish opinion polls in the final day or two before the voting actually starts because... Of course, opinion polls can uh, influence uh, public opinion just as much as they can test it. But it would appear, based on the polls that we have seen, uh, that the centre-left government, or led by the Socialist Party, has lost ground, that the right wing has gained ground, that the far right has gained even more ground proportionately, and that the whole future of Spain, perhaps, tonight lies in the balance. And the events in Catalonia, the savage sentences of a hundred years in jail, without a peep from the European Union, by the way, that fortress of democracy and liberty, democratically elected Catalan politicians sent to prison, eight of them, I think, or nine, for a hundred years in total for the crime of organizing an unofficial referendum. You couldn't make it up. But the resurgence of the Catalan question on the proximate cause of these savage jail sentences has actually heavily influenced, maybe even dominated, much of the uh, Spanish general election which, uh, on which the polls have now uh, closed. Joe Brew is an American journalist who follows events in Spain and in its constituent parts very closely indeed. And if I'm lucky, he'll be on Skype joining me now. He is indeed. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, George. Nice to speak with you. And you, my friend. Tell us, uh, if you would, what you know about what's likely to come out of the Spanish election, and then we'll go back to the Catalan question, if we may. Yeah, I mean, Spain is on the verge of being ungovernable. So this, is the, this was the fourth election in four years, and everything points to the potential alliances being even less formable than prior. So, so there's not a, a left block that can, can get over 50%. There's not really a right block, and the right block is now shattered between three different alliances. 
And, and for the left to form a majority, for, for Pedro Sanchez, the social, socialist leader, to form a majority, he really needs the votes of the pro-independence parties, the Basque parties and the Catalan parties. But because of his treatment of the Basque and Catalan questions over the last year, they, they are not really willing to give that vote anymore. So, so Spain is, is looking very much ungovernable at this point, and there's not really a, a clear way out. In any case, Joe, if uh, a government in Madrid was resting upon the parliamentary votes of people who want to leave Spain, that could only be another huge shot in the arm uh, to the right and the far right. I mean, that I, 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 I hesitate to say it because of past history, but that's almost a civil war recipe, that one. Yeah, I think there's there's a there's two different narratives. One is this narrative of of deep division, right? And so people can't agree on anything. Catalans are divided. Spain are divided. I think though, un, underneath the surface, there, there's a large degree of consensus on some matters. I mean, you just mentioned these savage sentences, right? Nine to thirteen years in prison each for for people for people who organized a referendum. Now, about four fifths of Catalans are against these sentences. They they don't want their leaders in jail, right? I don't know the data in the rest of Europe, but I can't imagine there's a lot of support for this, right? In terms of Catalonia's independence, for example, there's, you know, it's 50-50 on the question, but again, three quarters of Catalans want a vote, right? And within Spain, of course, there, there's a lot of division about how to settle the Catalan question, how to govern, you know, but all these things are best decided with voting and through voting. Did, are the, is the outcome of this vote today very clear? Does it give a, a very good majority to one group or then another? No, but it does push people to say, hey, look, the way we've been doing things so far is not working. Maybe we need to rethink our, our political overtures, right? So I'm optimistic. Well, we've had three uh, general elections since we passed a law uh, which said we could only have a general election every five years. We've had three general elections in four years. So we're not far behind the Spanish in that regard. Uh, but I've got to tell you, voting doesn't solve anything here either, uh, at least not yet. We voted overwhelmingly to leave the EU, and we still haven't left it. We had an election in 2015, 2017, now 2019. We might get another hung parliament. Again, uh, a party might be resting upon Scottish nationalist votes, for example the quid pro quo being another referendum, a potential breakaway. Um, it seems to me like democracy isn't really working in at least two of the European Union's uh, big countries. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the democracy is, is a messy system, right? And the question is, is there any system better? So, so I, I haven't come across a better one. I mean, in, t in terms of what the crisis is about right now, both both in the United Kingdom and in Spain, there, there's this question of kind of institutional representation, and people feel this distance with their institutions that they don't feel before. And I, I, I blame you know politicians for this, for having kind of distanced themselves from what people on you know town square are feeling and talking and and thinking about. Um, I, I think that these crises though can be productive. So I, I think generally change is made in moments of, of crisis. And clearly, you know, the European Union, the United Kingdom, Spain, Catalonia need some major changes because the, the status quo is, is just not acceptable to a lot of people. So, so the question is, are, are they going to make changes for the better or for the worse? I, I'm hopeful and optimistic that 
that they'll make changes for the better. And I think even out of this Brexit debacle, maybe there can be some changes for the better within the European Union. Um, but but I, I think it, it's a mistake to see all of these crises as, as a, a sign of something going wrong rather than the inevitable consequences of, of things starting to fix themselves, right, and, and problems starting to come to the surface that really needed to come to the surface. Well, that's very optimistic. Uh, you mentioned that the Catalans are 50-50 on uh, breaking away from Spain. That's not really much of a basis for such a major thing. In Scotland, 55-45 voted against Scotland uh, breaking away. The EU referendum was 52-48. You see my point here that we actually have a logjam and we have no political class big enough, credible enough, with sufficient following to find a way through these problems. That's how it looks to me, and it certainly looks that way to me in Spain. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely blocked, right? So the, the current status is very much a block. I try to think a, a little bit more big picture, though. So outside of the immediacy of 2019, 2020, and there's there's a couple things, at least in the case of Spain and Catalonia, that I look at. One is demography. So the anti-independence uh, portion of Catalonia is really driven by the old, right? And that's the same group that drove the pro-Brexit vote. And, and the reality is, is they're not going to be voting in a few years. And the young, those that are 16, 17, that haven't quite voted yet but will be soon, they're largely anti-Brexit and they're largely pro-Catalan independence. So, so without major changes, you know, the UK will be less in favor of Brexit. Catalonia will be more in favor of independence. I, I don't know what's going to happen in the next year or two in terms of the UK's actual leaving of the, the European Union, but that, that should solidify the UK's relationship with, with the European Union. But I think you're totally right that, I mean, politicians have not figured out a way to talk with each other that gets out of this kind of loop of who gets the 51%, right? And, and that's that's a problem not just in Catalonia or in the UK. It's, it's going to be a problem all over the world because it's very hard to, to get anything done if you're just looking at trying to barely beat the other guy, right? And I mean, we have this in the United States right now. We have it in democracies all over the world. I think that the sense of being part of a democracy where you're trying to build broad alliances that, that's being lost in general. Tell me about this Vox uh, party, a right-wing populist party. They seem uh, likely to do very well, doubling their uh, number of seats. Some are speculating. Uh, just how uh, right-wing and how populist are they? Where have they come from and how and why? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much the far right, and I, there's not really any debate on that. They are. Uh, Anti-women rights, they're against immigrants' rights, um, they want to lock up the current president of Catalonia, they want to suspend or completely get rid of all the autonomies in Spain. So this is the kind of decentralized yeah. form of government and replace it with centralized. They want to re-centralize re the, the country, yeah? Exactly. And, and, and so the party itself has just emerged in the last couple of years. It came from um, you know almost nothing to now being a major presence. It looks like, for the most recent polls, in Madrid, so this is a European capital, they got about 20-22% of the vote, right? So so it's definitely a major presence now in Spanish politics. But, but the ideas aren't new. So, I mean, Spain was a fascist dictatorship until the late 70s, and during the, the transition to democracy, none of the fascist 
dictators <laughs> where were punished or even had to face any any sort of trial. And so a lot of them survived and their ideas survived and they've just been absorbed into what is the popular party. That's kind of the, the right-leaning party in Spain. And now that that party is fractured into three, uh, there's kind of a more explicit far-right one and a central right and a liberal right. But, you know, th those people and those ideas have always existed in Spain. They're, they haven't emerged from nothing. It's just now they have a, you know, they've broken up into enough groups that you can pinpoint which one is the far right and which one's a little less far. Now, a lot of liberals and uh, progressives here once had hope in the Podemos movement, but they too have dimmed, haven't they? Yeah, they, they very much have. And I mean, a, a big part of this is Catalonia. So Podemos and, and their, their leader, Pablo Iglesias, they've stuck to their guns with wanting Spain to be a, a plurinational, a multinational country, right? To say Catalans should decide who gets to govern Catalonia, and we should embrace our multilinguistic and kind of multinational heritage. And unfortunately, from my point of view, uh, the Spanish electorate has punished them for that. So those aren't popular ideas right now in Spain. There's there's definitely kind of a movement towards recentralization and a, a general desire to get back at what a lot of Spaniards see as an unacceptable act of disobedience on, part, on the part of Catalan leaders. And so Podemos has stuck this kind of tried to keep this middle line of saying we are pro unity of Spain, but at the same time, we don't want to obligate Catalans to be part of Spain if they don't want to be. We want this to be a, a union of consent, right? Um, and that, that message just hasn't really re resonated with the Spanish electorate. So finally, and I'm grateful, uh, Joe, for your time. Uh, I know it's difficult to predict before we see the results, but what would be the most likely governing coalition in Spain? Or may we be even back to the polls again pretty quickly because no majority can be formed from the alphabet soup that seems to have come out of today. Yeah, I mean, al alphabet soup is definitely the right term for it. And no coherent majority can be formed. So so you can either have kind of an unnatural majority of, you know, the, the central left and the center right saying, hey, we're going to exceptionally govern together to stop these, these pro-independence parties. Or you can have the pro-independence parties perhaps endorsing Pedro Sanchez, even though they don't even want to be part of the same country of him, because of the alternative might be worse. So, so there's a number of, of kind of unnatural uh, alliances that could be made. In either case, I mean, e either Spain will repeat elections again, you know, after, after this, because they won't be able to even create a, a functioning government, or perhaps there'll be a, a government that will last a year or so. But I do not predict that there will be a full legislature coming out of this, these elections. I think Spain is, per the current formulation, a little bit ungovernable. And I think they'll, they'll probably need to repeat elections in the next year or so. George Roo, very grateful for your time and expertise. Thanks for joining us on yeah, the mother nice of all talk shows. Uh, now, uh, let me deal with some of the paperwork. My goodness, it's uh, flowing in that poll. 3,586 people have voted. 62% say Blair was the biggest hypocrite. That's down to Boris Johnson, 12%, no change. Jeremy Corbyn, 26%, three, up three. I'm still waiting for someone to tell me why, how. Tim Previtt says, very pleased to hear your recommendation of Natasha Atlas Music on Moats. I've known of her since her work with Jean-Michel Jarre, Jarre on C'est la Vie. It is a brilliant work. Philip 
uh, I've already dealt with. Born Local says, I now think Labour would gain 10% automatically if they got rid of Corbyn. His fence sittery has been a running joke through this Brexit process, and everyone has witnessed it. Scouser Lar says, something's terribly wrong with Corbyn's Labour when yourself, Chris Williamson, and Ken Livingstone are outside of it, and the likes of Hodge, Watson, and Phillips are on the inside of it. Not to mention Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, et al. Thank you very much uh, for that. Um, let's uh, go to uh, Mr. Brown, uh, UK. Given the present expectation that the Brexit party will gather 10 to 15% of the vote in most constituencies, Will this outcome not split the vote and mean Labour in many places can get enough first-past-the-post votes due to the failure of anyone else to get more votes? I said right at the beginning of this campaign that if Johnson and Farage made any kind of working arrangement between them, that the Brexit Party, Conservative Party alliance would win a huge majority, perhaps in excess of 100 seats. But if they didn't reach an accommodation, that everything was to play for. Now, this breaking news I gave you just a few minutes ago, uh, we'll have to see what comes out of that. If the Brexit party does do a deal with the Conservatives, then it changes the paradigm of this election uh, very dramatically. If Labour can change the subject of the narrative of the election away from Brexit onto other matters, uh, then they are competitive. But regionally, that's not going to be easy, perhaps even not going to be possible at all. I can tell you that in the West Midlands, every person you talk to, every person you talk to, talks about Brexit. It's true also in the East Midlands, as this week's polling makes clear. It's true also in the Northwest. I'm in the Northwest uh, every other weekend in the Greater Manchester area, watching my children play football, going to see Manchester United, talking to large numbers of people at both. Uh, and I can tell you that the Brexit issue is vibrant there. It might not be in the bubble. In fact, it isn't in the bubble. In this building, I'm probably the only supporter of Brexit here. But this is not real life. This is not real life behind me. Labour will do enormously well in London. They'll build up majorities that are now 20,000 to 30,000, 35,000 even. But you can't form a government because of that, if you are at the same time losing tens, dozens, maybe scores of seats that you already hold. Think about it. If you lose a seat that you already hold, you have to win two seats somewhere else to make an advance on where you were before. People haven't thought carefully enough about this. You thought that I was Cassandra, crying in the night. You thought that you knew better than me. 
that the election would not be about Brexit. It would be about sure start, or what's Corporal Mason of NATO? This is the climate change election. Is it bollocks, the climate change election? Not a single person that I have met in the Midlands of England has raised a single word about the climate change election. This is nonsense. It's wishful thinking on the part of good people, decent people who think their wish can become the reality, but it doesn't. You can't change prevailing facts by wishing them away, by just seeking to ignore the elephant in the room. And I told you from last September, that's September before last September, September of 2018, I told you the Labour Party conference decision committing Labour to a second Brexit referendum was going to be fatal. I told you that. But you didn't believe me, all you Corbyn supporters that think like Philip, that I'm not defending him robustly enough. I'm telling you what I think is the truth. You tell me if I'm wrong. But don't imagine for one minute that I have an obligation to lie for Jeremy Corbyn or for the Labour Party. I don't lie for anybody, least of all people who've treated me so shabbily. I know I owe nothing, nothing, nothing to the Labour Party. I defend Corbyn where he's right. I defend him against unjust attacks. And I criticize, criticize him when I believe that he is wrong. And you better get used to that. Otherwise, you're merely demonstrating cult-like behavior. I believe in Jesus. That's the only savior for me. Religion is about faith. Politics is not about faith. Politics is about facts. And facts cannot be wished away. Let me take a break. You're watching and listening to the mother of all talk shows. Now, as I said at the beginning of the show, if you have not yet heard Natasha Atlas, as soon as this show is over, you must go to YouTube and see her perform. I have been a fan for, well, I'm not going to embarrass her in terms of age. For many years, she is stupendous. And in the past, she has worked with some of the biggest names in the music business. I'm looking at them here. Uh, Peter Gabriel, Nitin Sony, Nigel Kennedy, Indigo Girls, Jean-Michel Jarre, Ibrahim Malouf. And she is now collaborating with a new generation of musical talent. She's internationally acclaimed. She has one of the world's most distinctive voices. And she synthesizes Western and Eastern musical traditions. Even in her voice, she looks like someone from the Maghreb, but she sounds as she is like someone from London. Natasha Atlas, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You were on the Sputnik show with my wife on, on Saturday. I understand that went uh, very well. Uh, let's start with something about you before we go on 
uh, to the music. How, coming from the West, being born, brought up at least in the West, how did you manage this synthesis of Eastern and Western sound? Um, I think it was um, something that happened in a way naturally because of my background. And I, from an early age, wanted to mix Arabic music with um, Western music because that's what I was listening to at home. Yeah. And um, so I guess it was just finding the right people to do it with that um, propelled everything into motion, I suppose. And are you more popular in the East than the West? Have the, has the Arab music buying public uh, discovered you in the way that critical voices in the West have? Um, apparently so. I mean, I've, I hear reports that I'm very, very popular in Morocco. You know, they... I, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. They um, say that in, um, on Spotify I'm listened to more in Morocco than I am listened to in Spain and this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, it's, it's, it's growing. In because it is different. I mean, for me, Arabic music is Fayrouz and, uh, and Um Kultum and uh, wonderful, wonderful singers, but from a, a different era and a different genre. And then uh, there's uh, the Rai music from, uh, from Morocco, Sheb Khaled and others that I very much liked from the Maghreb. Mm. Uh, but a woman singer like you, with a, really a wholly new genre, I just wondered how that had broken through in the, in the Arab world. Well, I think um, things have changed a lot. When I first started, it was probably a bit more difficult. And what I was doing back then with groups like Trans Global Underground and Jar Wobble was um, was very sort of uh, cutting edge at the time. And for places like the Middle East, it was it was very new. And then you started to see other artists um, bringing in a kind of a fusion, and uh, and things have have gone on from there. Mm. I, I noticed that you're doing you're appearing uh, more often in uh, uh, film. Uh, soundtracks. Hmm. I mean, to my amazement, you're in Sex in the City too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was that? What was that like? Well, you know, they they approached me to to uh, to feature this song um, in the film, and uh, and I was very pleased because. But the film was uh, uh, based uh, somewhat in the, I think, in the Gulf. So it was supposed to be in the Gulf. I don't know where they actually filmed it, yeah. but uh, it looked more like India to me than. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Than the than the golf uh, and also the Hulk. You were yes. in the Hulk. Yeah. Now that is big news. That was a very big uh, and important film. You were in Brick Lane. You were in Sahara, mm -hmm. Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, I mean, do you do you enjoy that or do you enjoy being on the stage more? Um, I think uh, there are moments when I really like recording and I like writing music and composing. Sometimes for film, sometimes for contemporary dance, and then just, you know, with my band, who are really jazz musicians. Um, and it, it sort of, it, it changes. There are times when I feel like I really want to go on tour and I want to, you know, express myself on stage and other times when it's, it's more comfortable in the studio. Yeah, mm. very, very uh, interesting. Uh, you mentioned jazz. Uh, I've noticed that uh, I've been following your career for, as I say, many, many years. Would you say you're edging towards jazz as your genre? Uh, at, at the moment, it definitely is, is figuring into the equation because 
I've done um, two albums um, that that are in that field. This, the new one, Strange Days, is. Um, this is your new album. This is my new album. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, I got you. it. My wife gave it me from your uh, interview the other day. It's absolutely brilliant. It's yeah. out now, is it? People it, can get it now. Yes, yes. Yeah. From all the usual portals. Yep. And and describe the genre that that is. Not that people should be obsessed about genre. I'm able to listen to a very wide variety of musical genre. But for those that want to place it, if you like. Um, I guess you could call it Arabic jazz. I mean, it's very much in the jazz uh, field of, of music in the sense that uh, it, it's uh, rife with sort of uh, harmonic uh, jazz um, language, but it has a lot of the Arabic uh, language as well, as in the quarter tone scales are very much prevalent in um, a lot of the songs. Now, you mentioned Morocco earlier. Are your parents from Morocco? No, I'm actually Anglo-Egyptian. Anglo but my, my, my name, Atlas, is definitely... From the Atlas yeah. Mountains. That's yes. why I assumed it. Yeah, although it's also Greek. And then I, when I went to Turkey and I was at the passport control, they said, ah, you are from here because we have many people with the name Atlas. So it's, it's, it's a Mediterranean uh, uh, name. It's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, Strange Days is a, an interesting title because... It is strange days again in the, in the Arab world. Everything seems to be turning upside down again. We had the so-called Arab Spring, which never really amounted to much. And now there's all kinds of problems in many Arab countries. Yeah. Do you follow the politics of the region? Definitely. And strange days is a reflection of what's going on around us. And it's also, you know, an examination of our perception of change and how we deal with things and how things can come up again and again and the mistakes that, that, that we make and, and the progress that we make. Uh, Strange Days is all about that. Yeah. And uh, so the, uh, are you going to tour with this album? Yep, we've started. Um, oh, you've started already? Yeah. yeah where, where are you appearing? Um, the, the next date uh, is uh, Liverpool and um, well, you'll, be, you'll be well received there. <laughs> yeah. I must say, uh, yeah. it's my favourite city for yeah. performing and I always get big audiences and very enthusiastic. Where yeah. are you playing in Liverpool? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. So we, people can find it though, yeah? Yeah, on my, on my website, natashaatlasofficial.com. Um, so Liverpool, where else? Liv um, uh, London on the 21st of November. Um, I'm also going to be in Morocco on the 20th and then Birmingham... Uh, on the 29th, and oh. Car Cardiff as well. We're, we're in Birmingham, do you know? I'll get that okay. from your website. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll come and see you in Birmingham uh, if I can still get a ticket, and I encourage everyone... I'll put everyone. you on the, on the guest list. Will you? How very kind. I wasn't yeah. fishing for that. No, but, uh, <laughs> no, but... If, uh, if uh, you've any sense, I tell you, you'll make a point of seeing Natasha Atlas in concert because, well, it doesn't happen every day. She's not in your neighbourhood uh, every day. And you'll pick up her album, Strange Days, and at the end of this show, you'll look for her on YouTube. And you'll agree with me, this woman is a star. Natasha Atlas, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Been a very great pleasure uh, to see you. In the last hour, we have, uh, of course, the normal Ask Adam, uh, which uh, is going to be controversial, I think, this week, because... Quite a few of you are not very happy with Adam's uh, point of view. And I'll say what I said uh, 
last week and say it perhaps with more uh, point. I'm not responsible for Adam Gary's political views and he's not responsible for mine. And I have no intention of running a show which is just me in stereo. I want different points of view to be heard here on this uh, platform, but also from you in your tweets and uh, in your uh, calls. We've got 4,344 votes on the poll. I think we'll close it now. 62% said Tony Blair was the biggest hypocrite at the Cenotaph today, but 26% thought it was Jeremy Corbyn. Only 12% thought it was Boris Johnson. I'll tell you why I think that is perverse. Uh, first of all, uh, Tony Blair is responsible for more dead British service personnel than any living political figure. It is now attested and fact that he sent British forces, ill-clad, ill-equipped, under-armed, into a wholly unnecessary and illegal series of wars, which cost the lives, yes, of significant numbers of British personnel, the health of significantly more, but more importantly, it cost the lives of a million people in Iraq and sent ISIS and Al-Qaeda cascading everywhere around the world. And you're telling me he's not the biggest hypocrite at the Cenotaph today? Somebody should have marched up to him with irons and put them ar around his legs and hands and marched him off to The Hague for a war crimes trial. That's what should have happened today in Whitehall. What did Corbyn do to deserve the epithet hypocrite in that poll? Anyway, that poll is coming to an end, and there's another one. Well, let me just say, I queued for 10 minutes in Greg's to buy a vegan sausage roll. And by the time I got to the counter, they were sold out, and I have not yet eaten a Greg's vegan sausage roll. But now, McDonald's are going vegan. Would you eat a McDonald's vegan burger? <laughs> well, actually, I don't go into McDonald's, though my wife does, and my children, despite my trying to hold them by the legs to stop them doing so, quite like going into them, too. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I don't actually get the whole vegan thing. I should have asked Chris Williamson about this, though. He's got, if you'll forgive the pun, bigger fish. <laughs> to fry uh, at the moment, but Chris Williamson is uh, a very strong uh, vegan. Do you get it? Do you get the whole thing? Um, well, I get why McDonald's is trying to sell it, because let's put it this way. If you really like meat, you don't go to McDonald's, and if you really, and if you really <laughs> like vegetables, you probably don't go to McDonald's either. In general, though, the kind of vegan stuff that they're serving up at McDonald's is going to be even cheaper and even more processed than their meat. And in fact, one of my favorite satire shows that I thought was past its prime but it's having a bit of an afterglow, a kind of Indian summer. South Park, the American satire show, did a whole thing... Very good, South they Park. They did a whole thing about the fast food industry adopting processed goo, calling it vegan, and serving it as a substitute for meat. It's an economic consideration. So, I mean, if someone doesn't want to eat meat, I'm sure that there's vegan restaurants that are far better than McDonald's. Than McDonald's, But yeah. they're trying to cash in, literally, on a trend. Well, here, there's the LA running. Yeah. Yes, I would eat a McDonald's vegan burger, 39%. No, 61%. Maybe. 
Nothing. <laughs> Even Gina Miller couldn't overturn that poll. No, that's right. Uh, tweets, the blind leading the blind, says democracy is in no way messy. Hmm. The decision taken by the majority is the decision of democracy. Yes, uh, with protection for minority rights, that's true. Uh, where is the mess? Who told us there were overlords? You vote, but if you vote wrong, someone will tell you you should have voted right. Lol, messy democracy. I think that's not the point. I, I suppose the point I was making to uh, Mr. Drew, Joe Drew, uh, was that if 50% of the people of Catalonia want to break away from Spain and 50% don't, uh, Houston, we've got a problem because you can't actually uh, break up a country that has been one country for centuries uh, on the basis of, uh, of uh, one country, uh, one part of the country which wants to be considerably richer than the rest deciding that they're off and it's 50% plus one. There would have to be some kind of compromise uh, on that. The Brexit decision is different. We're not breaking up our country by leaving the European Union. We're merely leaving a, 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 an economic union that we were actually misled into, told that it would be purely an economic community, against which nobody has any real objections, uh, but found ourselves in the middle of what was fast becoming and has accelerated in the last few weeks, uh, a supranational state, a state with no democracy, but all the other trappings of a state, am I right? Oh, absolutely right. It's more akin to an anti-colonial struggle, and the nature of the colonial unit breaking away isn't the point of such a struggle. It's that this is a defined unit. We want to be self-governing and to hell with the past. And that's what people said quite clearly in 2016. It was outlined in the law. If Cameron really wanted to be cheeky and rig it for his own side, he would have said, let's have a 60% threshold. But in general, I don't like those kinds of thresholds because I do think that in a classical democracy, it's majority rule in a society that, as Britain has for centuries, guaranteed minority rights insofar as there's never been any first or second class subjects, I prefer the proper word, even though the government doesn't, um, that they have in other societies. Spain is a whole different kettle of vegan fish for multiple historic reasons, many of which transpired in the lifetimes of most people listening today. And so I think while Spain is a modern first world European country and Britain is a modern first world sort of European country in terms of geography, anyway, the histories of democracy, the histories of constitutionalism and the histories of continuity in government are totally different. So I think the SNP and the Catalans are holding each other's hands because the optics, as the kids say, look similar, but the history is quite different. Uh, but the, the central government in Madrid has handled all this dreadfully. Oh, horribly. Imagine Cameron or May or any... Um, imagine someone sending the tanks in or the the, the club wielding police and to break up a Nicola Sturgeon meeting. I mean, you couldn't... You, maybe you'd need some of those people to drag me into a Nicola Sturgeon <laughs> meeting, but certainly it would be ghastly if that were used to break one up, and certainly that's not going to happen in now this country. Now, you can vote on the McDonald's new vegan burger. Uh, that's the kind of thing that ends up in the Daily Express, so if you want your <laughs> opinion to uh, count, then get voting on my Twitter feed. It's 34% yes and 66% no so far. Mike in South Carolina 
is on the line. Mike. How are you doing, George? Good to talk to you again. And you, sir. And you. What would you like to say? Uh, well, we were talking about the poll you had, and uh, and I was of the opinion that uh, even though it, it does appear to be a landslide, that Blair is on top. It's a landslide, uh, but it should, it should have been 100%. That's uh, exactly what I was going to say. It should have been in the 90% range for sure. And that uh, Tony Blair and uh, George Bush ought to be sharing a cell somewhere together. Absolutely. Although, Mike, that would be cruel and unusual punishment, as your Constitution <laughs> says. To lock <laughs> someone up well, with George know, W. Bush would probably be cruel and yes. unusual punishment. <laughs> I, I do. I do understand that, but but uh, basically what I'm saying is, how long has it been since the Chilcot report came out, and and how has that affected uh, Tony Blair's fortunes? He's made millions of dollars. I mean, he's he's just rolling in money now, and and in fact, he should be under the jail. I'll tell you uh, what, Mike, you don't know you don't know the half of it. Uh, not only has he made a hundred million pounds personal fortune and not lost a penny as a result of the Chilcot report, we have to suffer him on our television and radio and on the front pages of our newspapers virtually every single day. He has no shame. I understand. No shame at all. He'll give us exactly. orders. He'll, he'll give us uh, 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 his uh, peerless advice on any matter, at the drop of a hat, <laughs> without a blush. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm one of the uh, the very few Americans that pay attention to the British political system. Uh, if you asked anybody else here in the United States what the Chuck report was, they would they couldn't tell you. Okay, they would have no clue. In fact, they can't even tell you how your government works. Uh, most of the people here are virtually clueless, not only about the British government, about, but about their government here. <laughs> and, and here's here's one thing I wanted to tell you before we leave. Yeah. When uh, uh, they have changed. Uh, the uh, Armistice Day to a Veterans Day, okay? Yeah. And this is just another example of how the government is changing a day that was dedicated to peace, okay, to make it about uh, uh, honoring people who fight in the wars. Now, I'm a veteran myself. Uh, George, you and I are, are almost exactly the same age. I was born in 1952. Yeah. I have watched everything that happened in our country. And I, and I have my finger on the pulse of the political system here. And, and I try to in your country as well. But but this is ridiculous. It's a sham, you know, that, that they can do this and turn Peace Day into a Veterans Day so you can celebrate more war heroes. Well, that's the, the danger of it. Thanks for that, uh, Mike. Uh, a very good call from South Carolina. That is the danger of the whole thing, that it becomes a celebration of militarism rather than a remembrance of those who fell in wars, sometimes noble, sometimes ignoble, uh, and for which the politicians, the political class, who declared the wars but didn't fight them, uh, have taken no responsibility. I must bring you some breaking news, quite distressing breaking news. Uh, we are hearing that the Bolivian president, Evo Morales, has resigned amidst unrest over electoral fraud claims. And the source for that is SputnikNews.com itself. The head of the army earlier this evening uh, called on him to step down. Last evening, a mob uh, took over the uh, state radio and television station, and uh, a very great deal of effort has been put into destabilizing the situation in Bolivia. If we get more on that, I'll bring it to you. Uh, 
Adam, on the, the Remembrance uh, Day issue, I, I thought it very moving, again, as always, today, to see the, the surviving veterans, uh, not many now left from the Second World War. I found the, I always find the last post being uh, blown a very moving sound. I watched the Royal Albert Hall uh, performance uh, last night. Uh, I absolutely respect and, and bow my head uh, on all of that, but I can't uh, pretend that every war we've fought in has been right, has been just, has been noble, and I cannot stomach at the head of the processions taking the march past some of the biggest hypocrites ever to walk the earth. What say you? Well, I've got good, I've got good news uh, for you in this respect. First of all, I've got to say that Remembrance Sunday is the most important day in my calendar year. It's something that moves me immeasurably beyond words and the feelings that I have for the men who fought and died and suffered is it's a kind of devotion that I don't really feel in the worldly environment. This is something ethereal. Now, of course, like you, I am anti-war, but I'm incredibly pro-veteran. Some people, both on the left and the right, find that position hypocritical. I think it's one of the only positions that isn't. But here's where the good news comes in. Well, I'll start with the trite good news. Uh, I always stand at attention whether I'm in Whitehall or watching on television for the soldiers, for the royal family, uh, for the religious, uh, for the clerics of various religions. And then when the politicians come out, that's time for a comfort break. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the more serious point is that because tragically, since between 1999 and the present day, we've had war after war after war, foreign war in succession, it means there's a new generation of still very young veterans who know the cost of war and know the price of war, because although I would like to not see another war anywhere, the reality is when you go many decades between wars, it's easy for those who never fought in a war to reshape the narrative from one of remembrance to one of vulgarity. After the Second World War, you didn't really have that because every man of a certain age in this country just about was a veteran. They knew what war really meant, unlike Tony Blair's generation, who got all the benefits of the welfare state without having to fight for anything in their lives. It's not my favorite generation, I have to say that. I think that the, the veterans that are now coming into sort of their middle age or their mature young years are going to have a more somber, a more sensible and a more reasonable and, yes, a more patriotic view than Tony Blair's generation. I think the thinking is going to be a bit more like the people standing here in 1946 and 7 than those who came of age in the 60s and 70s when this country didn't fight wars on the scale that it's been fighting since the Blair era. Thank you for that. Uh, more breaking news. Uh, we are just hearing that Keith Vaz has resigned. Keith Vaz, uh, do I hear cheering in the gallery? <laughs> uh, Keith Vaz, who was an MP for Leicester East for 32 years, said he was retiring from Parliament. He was, in fact, banned from Parliament for six months just before it was prorogued. In a statement, Mr Vaz said, and I quote, 
I have decided to retire after completing 32 years as the Member of Parliament for Leicester East. In that time, I have won eight general elections. It has been an honour, he says, and a privilege to serve my constituency since I came to the city in 1985. Well, that's uh, the... Uh, Outgoing MP, uh, Keith Vaz, uh, uh, it's never a good look to dance on anyone's grave, uh, metaphorically, but it must be the right decision, mustn't it? Well, he used to know people in high places, and now he perhaps will be a high man in low places. Everyone, well, the regular listeners to this show will know my views on drugs, and the fact that uh, drugs were a big part of his downfall makes me think that the only thing preposterous about this is that it's taken so long. I mean, with all of the people either getting kicked out of the Labour Party or encouraging people to vote for Boris Johnson, I thought there was a real possibility that the entire party would be left to Keith Vaz and Jess Phillips. I suppose Jess Phillips, for those who don't know her, she's a full-time MP and an occasional Socrates impersonator. It might be all down to her and perhaps Emily Thornbury with an EU necklace and perhaps a glass of gin. Actually, writing in the Observer today, uh, Jess Phillips defected to Labour after uh, four years of stabbing Labour in the back <laughs> front side. Uh, she came out for Labour in the uh, general election. 32% are ready to eat a McDonald's vegan burger. 68% are not. Uh, Gideon, UK, uh, says, really enjoying the show tonight. Re-Brexit. I cannot for the life of me understand why Remainers can't see what seems obvious to me, that the EU is micro-fracturing before our eyes. Its days are numbered. None so blind as those that will not see. Liam Ryan, good friend of the show, a very clever man, says the Rothschilds sent money and food to Ireland during the Malthusian genocide, otherwise known as the famine, as did the Ottomans. This was a very kind thing to do. Britain gave no help whatsoever. Lynn Smith says, I like what George Galloway said, that he will defend Corbyn when he's right. But if he doesn't agree, he'll criticise. Otherwise, it's a cult. I tried to do the same, although some compromises always need to be made for a party to get over the line. Well, th that's a fair point, Lynn, if you're in that party. But I'm not in that party. In fact, I was kicked out of that party. So some people want me to make compromises over the truth to get that party over the line when I'm not even in it and was kicked out of it. Do you see my point, uh, Lynn? Uh, Deep Truth Operative says, I want to see the demon... Tony Blair in a cage. Dr. Fath, URS, again another legend of ours, says Farage packs with Johnson, result certain Tory election win. Same day, Blairite backstabbers blame Corbyn and demand his resignation, replacing him with a right-wing uh, candidate. Blair's objective fully achieved, new Labour resurrected. And socialist tipstar, another legend, says how can anyone vote for Corbyn or even Johnson for that matter? although Johnson did look a scruff today. There are no bigger hypocrites out there than Blair and Campbell. Sean Bebber says people are voting. Corbyn are clearly heavily influenced by the mainstream media without knowing it. I know something of how this works. The medium is the message. Now, people are listening tonight from, amongst other countries, Canada, France, Greece, Holland, Sweden, the Ukraine, Australia, and South Africa. Now...
Ask Adam. Dakota says, something I'd like to see happen this time round is Labour return to Downing Street with a clear working majority, not needing to rely on a coalition. I'd like to ask Adam on his view. Well, take cover, because here's his view. Go ahead. Well, I'll start with the objective analysis, and then I'll give my view. Uh, yeah. e you know, ease them into it. So, first of all, what we've seen over the last week, and it's hard to believe it's only been a week. It feels like a month. Can we it does just, already, yeah. Can we just hold the election tomorrow and get it over with? And that's actually part of my objective point. This election is not an issues-based election. It's an emotion election. And that's because it's a fight over an issue that literally has already been decided. It's decided in 2016, and it's called Brexit. And so because of that, the actual minutiae of campaigns and manifestos and policies isn't going to matter much because I think people will have decided long before this moment who they're going to vote for than in almost any election in recent memory where some might be undecided the very morning they go out to vote. In terms, though, of how we see the various parties handling it, the Tory uh, campaign has frankly been I can't even say shambolic because a shambolic event makes some sort of noise. There's no storm, there's no fury, there have been some idiotic statements. The Labour campaign as a whole isn't much better, but Corbyn, and I'm not a fan of his personally, but he's a solid street-style platform-style campaigner, and so is Nigel Farage. The difference is that uh, Corbyn leads a party with a big machinery, but the machinery doesn't really like him. Farage's party is dangerously close to once again becoming a UKIP-style one-man band where they can't agree on what the tune is. So we're in a position where it looks as though the Conservatives will get a majority, but a smaller one than they would have gotten if there is a Brexit Pact. Now, earlier in the show, you talked about that, and I totally agree with you that if there is some sort of an agreement, whether formal, informal, some sort of combination, it will be a landslide for the Leave Alliance. If, however, the Brexit party in Midlands, South Wales and Northern English seats takes a lot away from uh, the Conservatives. Labour could slip in and possibly form some sort of pro-Remain coalition that probably wouldn't last more than two years, but which would last long enough to utterly obliterate Brexit and then go on to do other damage. I think the, the realistic possibility of Labour forming a, a majority government is close to none, not least because, and this is sort of a big elephant in the room, Labour are going to be virtually, if not entirely, wiped out in Scotland. No one's talked about that, but that's a big, big issue in this election. Now, we don't know what's happening in the talks this evening. Uh, I'm not sure now that so many candidates have been selected by the Conservative Party uh, that... Uh, uh, that it's going to be possible for the Conservatives to stand down in some areas uh, in order to give Farage anything at all in return for a non-aggression uh, pact. What's your gut feeling on that? Do you think they're going to reach a deal uh, before the nominations are in? I mean, I think they've got to be in by Thursday. 
Well, I think Farage has shot his fox. He was asking for too much, knowing he wasn't going to get it. And a few days ago, on a video inside a bus, he actually decided to lower the standards of his offer. He's gone from saying, stand your man down and, uh, and or uh, ditch your treaty that Boris has been hanging his hat on. That was always, as we were saying last week, totally unrealistic. Now he's got a slightly more realistic uh, proposal. He's saying to Boris that F Farage will stand down a majority, if not a good handful, of his Brexit party potential candidates if Boris says he's making a commitment not to extend this frankly stupid transition period beyond 2020 because in the in the political declaration which accompanies and is in some ways even more important than the withdrawal agreement itself it allows this transition period which means staying in the EU in all but name and without a voice beyond 2020 Barnier said it could be up to three years of this transition period which is like remain minus it's a terrible situation but with 2020 a few months away um, and with the possibility of a Remain coalition stopping Brexit, Farage has lowered his expectations and I think that he might have to eat a bit of humble pie and say, look, I'm not going to stand against the Conservatives in places where they can win. You don't spend your money campaigning in seats that are strong Labour leave seats where the Brexit party have a chance. I'm still not putting money on that happening because there's a lot of personal bad blood. There is, and a lot. also, you know, candidates already in the field. I never met a candidate yet that once they were in the contest weren't trying to win it. Uh, you know, I've had people say, yeah, put me up as a paper candidate. But once they're actually on the ballot, they're far from paper candidates. Some of these they're Brexit party ones calling, are, I hate to say, calling, but some uh, of them calling are. Calling out for resources and... <laughs> And, uh, and activists and so on. Let's take a call from Joe in Glasgow. Go ahead, Joe. Hi there, George. Hi. Good to speak to you. And you? I, I'd like to start off by saying a big hail, hail. Hail, hail. The Celts what are here, fantastic. still top of the league. What a victory over Lazio. It was, exactly. And that's what I would like to talk about, George. Okay. Um, it was, recently, there's been some condemnation of the Celtic support, primarily from actually one Rod Stewart. Um, he was in the Daily Record, of course, you would remember that paper from your time up here, <laughs> um, saying, saying that Celtic fans had went too far because they had had banners condemning uh, Mussolini. Um, and yet again, in, in the newspapers today, there's uh, people criticising the Celtic supporters uh, because some of them didn't turn up for the minute silence before the game. As far as I'm aware, George, uh, the war, uh, World War Two, and World War, uh, was to defend our rights of free speech and other rights such as that. But yet, it is not OK for Celtic fans, some of who have had maybe family members killed or relatives killed by British Army in Ireland, to, you know, not take part in the remembrance of some of the soldiers who have passed away. Well, uh, uh, the, I didn't know that, uh, that Rod Stewart had done that, and I'm disappointed that he did, because I was extremely proud of the Celtic support responding to the fascist jackbooters of the Lazio support, jackbooting through the streets of Glasgow, uh, giving Hitler salutes, hundreds of them. I saw the pictures, I saw the footage uh, of it. Lazio has famously uh, a fascist fan base, and the Celtic supporters, the Green Brigade in particular, should be, and I did, 
uh, salute them publicly for the stand that they made against Italian fascism. After all, uh, our fathers and grandfathers had to go and fight these people. Some of them died fighting these people. We're not going to allow them to take over Glasgow on the guise of being football fans. Kay is in London. Uh, go ahead, Kay. Yeah, hi, George. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, I've always listened to Thank you. Um, everything you've done. I even watched your recent clip on RT, um, which was quite good, about Epstein case, mm. but that's not the question I wanted to ask. OK, thank you very much, though. Because um, <laughs> there's a lot of questions I could ask you. Mm. Um, I could even talk to you all day to be honest. Um, the question I wanted to ask was, um, I've been looking at, well, indirectly been looking at what's going on in the economic um, climate, and I kind of predicted um, almost like a seven months ago, or even a year ago, the current recession that we're in, even though the media is not saying anything about it. But now my prediction, I've gone a bit further, and I'm predicting the Great Depression, which we went through, um, which the world went through through 1929. Again, I can expand on that, but we have Well, let's, uh, let's hear, uh, Kay, what uh, Adam uh, thinks about that. A big prediction that not only are we going to have uh, a recession, but it will turn into uh, akin to the Great Depression of the 1930s. What's your view on that? Oh, that's undoubtedly true. The question is when. Uh, Kay, was that, did, have you predicted when or just soon? Um, I predict next year, maybe towards the summertime, because the Christmas mm. is going to start off, because no one's actually got money to spend this Christmas. I, I predict a quiet Christmas, to be honest. And due to low confidence in retail, that will kick off everything else, because already manufacturing is not strong, as in China trade war. The manufacturing products should be here by now, and I'm seeing signs that it's not there. Um, but in regards to the depression, we are currently in recession. We just don't know it yet. Um, and I think that because we've delayed it for so long, it's turning into the Great Depression. Because um, I was looking at a bit of the history re regarding it, and the same element of the 1929 before the Black Thursday is currently here. Um, people buying shares, people taking out money to buy shares of production, share price going up. It's just the banking system. And I don't want to say it, but that created the Second World War. And that's how countries like America was able to get economic advantage because they started producing um, guns, weapons. Mm -hmm. We all know that. I don't want to say too much. Well, no, uh, <laughs> it's depressing enough, the picture you've painted. Thanks, Kay, for it. What's your view on the imminence of uh, a crash? Will it be as big as 2008, or will it be on the scale of 1929, as Kay seems to think? Bigger, bigger than both. Um, debt is the reason for depressions, and out-of-control debt is always the product of a monetary policy that's run amok. And you've never had, a mod in, in modern history, a monetary policy that's running amok so foul as it is today. Now, Kay was talking generally about, from what I gathered, a British perspective about retail and less about the global crisis that could be caused only if America falls, because 
America, much as it was, if America wasn't even the most powerful country in the 1920s. It was an economic powerhouse, but the British Empire was at its biggest after the First World War. Now that America is the undisputed heavyweight champion of printing fake money and having a quite strong economy but built on debt, which is a disaster waiting to happen, we're going to have to wait to see when America fails. Now, when you've got a fiat money system and when everything's based on speculation, speculation fueled by debt, there are some minor things one can do to plaster the gaping wound. I think that one thing that could delay a big crash, and I do think it will delay it, certainly till after 2020, maybe till even after 2021, is the China-US trade deal, which is uh, which is inevitably, I think, unless someone gets angry at one another over a Twitter spat in the middle of the night, going to happen sometime. They've already agreed part of it, haven't they? They have. Uh, and Trump has recently said that the rest of it is on the verge of being agreed and they're just trying to find a venue to sign it. If yeah, it was supposed to be in Chile, but that had to be cancelled because of unrest in Chile. Yes, and because the thing is, I mean, the Chinese would probably be happy for Trump to just email them the trade deal and for then she to put a digital signature on. And so long as it wasn't done with Hillary Clinton's service, that would be fine. But <laughs> Trump is one for pomp and circumstance. And so he's suggesting, oh, well, let's he's do- He's suggesting a Trump resort somewhere? Kind, that was the implication. But China being another economic superpower, it sort of needs to be on neutral territory, much as football matches in Scotland maybe should be someone's going to kill me for that but oh well uh, but someone's saying london so maybe we can have a moats trade deal signing evening with president trump and president xi sitting in between oh, us now you're talking that would be fascinating my colleague uh, afshan ratansi has just interviewed bashar al-assad president assad of syria i'm looking forward to seeing that it's quite a scoop uh, for Indeed. going underground the rt uh, show uh, here's chris in red car on the line. Chris, welcome. Hello, George. How are you? Good, sir. Good. What would you like to say? Well, I'm all, I'm all at sixes and sevens because <clears throat> I've been a, a socialist and a trade unionist all my life. You know, when I was 16 years old, I was in Cargo Fleet Steelworks in Middlesbrough, and then I used to work in ICI, and I've never voted for anybody other than the Labour Party over the last a uh, few elections. I've done so through gritted teeth. Um, in 2016, 15-16, when Corbyn um, was running for leadership, I felt a hope. I felt, I felt um, excited that we had somebody who was a socialist, who was anti-EU, who was anti-globalist and all of this. And even my wife, being a conservative, all her life, but when she saw what the right of the of the Labour Party were doing in trying to get rid of him and the smears and everything else, she even joined the Labour Party to try and, and vote for him because she had a strong sense of right and wrong, and what was going on was wrong. And so when he became leader and he fought off two kind of like coup d'etats within the party, I was, go on, get in there kind of thing. And then all of a sudden he backed remain and I understand that he was like forced at knife point kind of thing to, to back remain and I couldn't forgive him for that really I could at the start but the more it's gone on I mean after the 2017 election and Labour did like so well with the amount of votes that they received and everything else I thought 
yeah, this is good. He's still going to honour his thing for Brexit and everything else. And then, of course, the Labour Party's position now is they're, they're very much a party of Remain and everything. And, I'm, and I mean, our MP in Redcar, for me, is a disgrace, you know. 68% of her constituents voted to leave the European Union, and yet she's gone against her own constituency majority. And, um, and I'm stuck now. I mean, so I, I just... I. I I've seen the Labour Party support them. I mean, Teesside, God, Middlesbrough, Redcar, Eston, Hartlepool, Stockton, these kind of places, Billingham, always been a Labour heartland. We haven't got one Labour-controlled council in the area, and that's all because of Brexit. And I just think, I just think they're going to get wiped out. You see, in the in the general election in these in these Labour heartlands, because of their stance over Brexit. But for me personally. And I know that the NHS is important, and I know that people suffering in poverty is important. But nothing, nothing, nothing is more important than the value and the worth of somebody's vote. And so for the first time ever, I'm going to have to vote either Brexit Party or Conservative. Now, some people that I know on my Facebook friend and, and, and on Twitter... And I'm say that you're one, of my, you're one of my Twitter followers, as I follow you. But some people on the left have called me a fascist and a this and a that and the other and so on and so forth. And, and it upsets me because, because for me, there's no bigger or more important issue than democracy in this country, George. And, and I want... Listen, you especially, as a lifelong socialist yourself... Do you think that I am right in voting, first of all, for democracy and the value of my vote, and that and that 2016 referendum's result being upheld? And secondly, am I right to vote for Conservative or Brexit Party to get rid of the Labour MP who has deliberately gone against 60% of her constituents? Well, uh, that's the call of the night, yes. uh, first of all, uh, without any doubt, and I hope it was being listened to uh, by, uh, by Jeremy Corbyn, who I know uh, often does listen. I hope it was being listened to by his supporters, uh, especially the most zealous of his supporters, those that uh, want to, uh, us all to have a blood test, uh, to show our faith in the one true religion uh, of Corbynism. Uh, I think it's a very important call because it echoes uh, the voice and in the voice of huge numbers of people throughout the North, uh, throughout the Midlands, throughout South Wales, throughout the Northwest, even Labour's uh, biggest heartland, Northeast. Uh, an even bigger heartland in the past and no longer. Uh, as you say, you adumbrated all these places that no longer have Labour councillors in. Hartlepool, they elected a monkey as the directly elected <laughs> mayor. <laughs> Good they choice. preferred the monkey to the Labour nominee. Now, there's a reason uh, for that. It may not always be expressed in the... Uh, estimable, admirable way in which you just uh, 
expressed it. It may come out in swear words. It may come out in talk that we don't like to hear uh, at the dinner table. But it is the voice of people who feel betrayed. Now, I can't tell you how to vote or whether you're right or wrong in how you vote. That's your uh, affair. Uh, I'm lucky. I'm going to be voting for myself. Uh, but I cannot ask anyone to vote for an MP who has spent the last three years trying to wreck the decision that the public in their own constituency made on Brexit in 2016. I simply can't. There will be some who can. There will be some who may, who will. Uh, but I could not ask them to do that because I agree with you that it is an absolute betrayal of the people. Now, let me uh, be clear. I don't believe that MPs are delegates. I don't believe that, that, that you know, Parliament is a kind of Soviet uh, in which uh, everyone must blindly follow the line or even the decision of their uh, constituents. I don't believe that. If everybody in Glasgow, Hillhead, had supported the Iraq war, I would still have voted against the Iraq yeah, war. Yeah. But I would have expected then to pay the political price for defying the wishes of my constituents and would have been proud to pay that price. And your MP, whoever it is, I don't want to know who it is, your MP ought to be prepared to pay the political price of deciding to uh, completely wreck the decision that was made in 2016. And one last point before I ask Adam. It's worse than what I've just said, because in 2017, your MP was elected on a clear manifesto promise to respect and implement the Brexit referendum decision. Thus, your MP is not just acting in bad faith in betraying the Brexit decision in 2016, they're betraying their own party's electron, electoral promise in 2017. Adam. Well, I'd go even further. That wasn't just the call of the night. That call should be saved by every radio station, every politician, every constituent in, throughout the country, because what we just heard, that is the voice of England, not Middle England, not Workington Man and all this other classist nonsense that the Liberals try to spew out from the cushy palaces of Fleet Street. That's the voice of authentic England, certainly outside of London. The the, the, literally, the litany that we heard about how someone toils with a decision, how one reaches that decision, and where one was politically before they came to that decision, is literally the textbook of how this election is going to be fought and won. So, tape record that call, that's one for the record books. I agree. It was uh, terrific. Thank you uh, very much uh, for it. Let me read, I've just read this Extraordinary uh, tweet, I think, from Dana, D-A-I-N-E-R. Are you going to get Ask Adam to wind his neck in a bit after his recent Corbyn-hating tweets? 
Remember, a lot of your followers only watch Moats because you're one of the only Corbyn-supporting commentators around. When that goes, so do we. Dana, leave now. I don't want you listening or watching this show anymore. In fact, you're banned from watching or listening to the mother of all talk shows. Let me first of all address your first point. Am I going to get a grown man with a sentient man, an intellectual man, to wind his neck in a bit? What do you mean? Am I going to tell him what to think? Am I going to tell him what to say? If that's your demand, the answer is no. He must say what he believes, as I say what I believe. That's freedom of speech. Now, you will go, will you, Dana? And what will you do? Watch the BBC instead? <laughs> Watch Sky instead? Listen to LBC or talk radio instead? Where else are you going to get the kind of three hours that you've just had where everyone is free to express their sincere point of view? What kind of person are you? What kind of show do you want? Do you only want to hear voices that agree with you? Because if you do, you're not clever enough to be at this open university of the airwaves. In fact, you need to go back to remedial and learn something about what democracy and freedom of speech actually mean. Let's hear from Joshua in London. Go ahead, Josh. Oh, hi, George. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, mate. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to, I know we've been over this before, George, and I hate, I hate going over the same ground, but since I'm going to Iran on Thursday uh, for the first time, uh -huh. hopefully not the only time. Um, I'm going I to Pakistan on Thursday. We might actually be on the same flight uh, <laughs> for the first part of the journey. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, Joshua. You're quite sure that um, Hillary Clinton would have scrapped Obama's agreement with the Iranians? Am I certain that she would have? Yeah. No, are I'm, you are you I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Adam, what do you think about that? I think she would have probably watered it down and done it in the supine way that she's famous for. Hillary Clinton is the kind of person who thinks that she can start a war without actually being revealed to be behind it. I mean, look what she did with Libya. She let Obama, who I'm no fan of, one of the worst presidents in American history, she let him be the fall guy for the war that she engineered in Libya. Such are the serpentine qualities of Hillary Clinton. So I think that she may well have abolished it by stealth, which is why whatever one thinks about Trump, he does do what he says on the tin, and Hillary Clinton can't even keep a truthful statement from the beginning to the end of a sentence without some lie intervening in between. So that's my view on that hypothetical. Joshua. Yeah, I, I just think that, you know, it, I know that um, under George W. Bush there was a rapprochement with Libya, but under Obama, Hillary Clinton was his Secretary of State. So you'd think that 
you know, she would have been a little, at least a little, a bit more faithful to his legacy, a little bit more obedient. No, she doesn't. And care. I don't think. I don't think she does uh, loyalty. No, <laughs> I don't think not. any of no, the Clintons. No, maybe not. I don't think any of the Clintons do loyalty. Ask Monica. Well, no. Well, yeah, I know that uh, Bill Clinton did cheat on his own wife, so maybe it does run on in, in the family. That, to say and, that Bill yeah. Clinton cheated on his own wife is like saying Ronaldo is a footballer. <laughs> Joshua, <laughs> I, I hope I see you at the airport on Thursday. I'm going well, to. I'm uh, I'm yeah. going to uh, address a conference on Kashmir in Karachi alongside Prime mm. Minister Imran Khan and the President mm. of Pakistan. Uh, I'm only going for a couple of days. I'll be back, of course, in good time for the show uh, next week. Thanks, Joshua. Safe journey uh, to you. The poll is closed. 1,539 people voted. 31% are gagging for a McDonald's <laughs> vegan burger. And 69% are... Uh, retching at the very <laughs> thought of it. Thank you very much. Which percentage are uh, retching indeed. at the thought of both? <laughs> yes. Now, now we're getting on to the, uh, if you'll forgive the pun, not the vegan, but the meaty stuff. <laughs> Ask Adam if he could briefly describe the Great Northern War of 1700 to 1721 and the War of Spanish Succession, 1701, to 1714 and explain how and to what extent they are linked. Well, in general, the Great Northern War saw the decline of Sweden as a fairly major power in northeastern Europe, and Russia was the primary but not the only beneficiary of that war. The War of Spanish Succession was essentially a war about the state of a divided Habsburg family, because there was, of course, the Austrian branch of the Habsburgs who lost it until 1918, funny that we mention it on this day of all days. And then, of course, there was the Western European Spanish branch of the Habsburgs. And so um, th that's, I suppose, the quick summary of the significance of those two wars. It's dumbfounding because I thought you were going to say, I have no idea what you're talking about, because <laughs> I had no idea what I was talking about. Very well done, Adam, I must say. Albert is in Honolulu, and I just love saying that. Albert in Honolulu. What would you like to say? Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, I wanted to briefly talk about what's developed over the Jeffrey Epstein case. Oh, yes. It's primarily what happened at ABC, that they spiked the story about him. Yes, indeed. And in now, 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 now we know. On the air. Now we know just how much pressure came to bear on the uh, ABC people to suppress the truth about Epstein. Right. This, the reason I bring this up is because as someone who was a print journalist for over 20 years, this isn't unusual. Um, this, this often happens not only in print journalism, but also in broadcast especially. And a lot of people wonder why some stories aren't looked at, why some crimes aren't investigated, why there isn't some investigative journalism looking into various events and stories, and why uh, when these events come out later, the newspapers and TV stations and even online sources haven't looked at it or haven't written about it. This is one of the reasons. 
It is extraordinary. Uh, it's the dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy, and one can uh, partly understand uh, how on ideological questions uh, that happens uh, because the people that own the media share the basic principles of the prevailing orthodoxy, the kind of economy we should have, and so on. But when it comes to malfeasance, when it comes to brazen law-breaking, when it comes to corruption and criminality on the part of individuals, it is astounding to me that all these media houses that have trumpeted their commitment to liberty and freedom of speech over all of my lifetime are now caught red-handed by their own staff talking into a microphone about how they actually suppress the truth. Adam. Well, there's two kinds of speech. There's free speech and there's expensive speech. I'll give a short example of each. When the Corbyn worshippers, who love to have a go at me using that weird digital utensil created by the crooks of Silicon Valley, uh, have, when, when they're using that, that's free speech. Uh, when they're saying the same things about people like Jeffrey Epstein or Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, that's called expensive speech, and a lot of people don't want to pay the price. That's why it took an undercover whistleblower to expose the fact that this news channel, I think it was ABC, ABC yeah. they had the info and they sat on it, just like people that I knew in the music industry, well, well Jimmy Savile was alive. Everyone knew it, everyone knew it, but they didn't dare say it, expensive speech. Yeah, uh, in America, there's even less of a justification because in Britain, you could be afraid to say something for fear of an expensive libel action that you could not fund, for example. Yes. But in America, there are effectively no libel laws. Not, not really it, anymore, no. It was, it was a conscious decision uh, by all these media houses under pressure from these splendidly liberal uh, Mrs. Clinton and others who decided that they were going to protect Epstein and that Me Too didn't apply to these poor young girls that were being trafficked by Epstein, uh, that uh, feminism didn't apply to these young girls that were being exploited by Epstein and Maxwell and their acolytes that were buzzing around like flies around a turd, uh, the Epstein uh, residence uh, in uh, Manhattan, that uh, splendid brownstone that he got for precisely no dollars. With a transvestite uh, Bill Clinton in a painting. Uh, yes. Uh, it, it is amazing how flexible the principles of the Liberals actually are. They want free speech, as you say, to speak on Twitter and even abuse others on Twitter. But they want to suppress free speech if it's something that they don't like to hear. Well, look, it's been marvellous uh, for me. Thank you, Adam, for joining us, as always. Uh, remember the roadshow uh, with uh, Adam and me in East Kilbride on January the 18th. You can still get tickets for that, though all the VIP tickets are taken. Who knew Scotland had so many VIPs? And I'm very glad to hear it. Uh, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time and the same place and tell another potential listener, another potential viewer. And don't forget, if you want a Moats graduate badge, 
you can get it off my website at georgegalloway.com, which is now alive and kicking, at least I hope so. Uh, it's alive and kicking, just like the uh, Glasgow Celtic, uh, who have now qualified for the later stages on the Europa League with their victory in Italy against Lazio. Hail, hail, Glasgow Celtic. Well, that's me. Done. See you next Sunday. God willing. Thanks for joining us.